If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Esther chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me do a brief recap of where we've been in the story because it is such a marvelous story, such a, a beautiful portrait of God at work even though he's at work behind the scenes, so to speak. So the book of Esther takes place approximately 2,500 years ago, so around 500 B.C., uh, the Persian Empire is ruling the earth, the largest, most powerful, strongest empire the world has ever known up to that point in time. And during that time, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, they've been exiled. And they've been allowed to return to the homeland. Some have chosen to return. Many have chosen to stay in, uh, in, in that area. And Esther takes place in the city of Susa, which is where we find the king. It was one of his palaces. King Xerxes, or also King Ahasuerus, depending on your translation, it could go either way. He needs a queen. And we know he has deposed the last queen because she did not do what he wanted her to do. And he has this terrible competition, this depraved beauty pageant, to select his next queen. And who gets chosen, of course, but a young Jewish girl named Esther. Now, no one knows she's Jewish other than Esther and her uncle Mordecai who had raised her and probably a few others in that Jewish community. But she's now the queen, and at the time that she's the queen, the king signs off on a terrible law influenced by this man named Haman who's going to be in our text this morning. And the law says that at a certain point in the future, all the Jewish people are going to be slaughtered. And Haman influenced the king to pass this law because he has a grudge against the Jewish people, and one Jew in particular... Mordecai, Esther's uncle. So the law is passed, the fate of the Jewish people in all the empire of Persia, not just in Susa, but all the empire. The fate of the Jewish people is doom, is destruction, is death, unless God intervenes. And the story of Esther tells how God chose to intervene to save his chosen people. And he does that by Esther. He does that through Esther. And so two weeks ago, if you remember, we talked about this idea of Mordecai's question that he asked her. Who knows? Who knows whether God has given you royalty for such a time as this? And that question that I believe just penetrated her soul like a seed. And that seed begins to grow. It begins to bear fruit. And last week, you heard Eric finish off the last few verses of that chapter where Esther's transformed from a girl who's afraid to go before the king to a woman who will say, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going. And we saw an example of that kind of transformation in a, in a man's life in our own body. Jack Regan was here telling his story and his struggle with the illness that, you know, every few months he goes to the doctor not knowing if this is the time that the doctor's going to say, you know, you've got, you've got a few months left to live and then that will be all. And how was he transformed by the power of the gospel to a man that says, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to live out my life the way God's called me to live it out. And that's all of our stories. We make a commitment to go where he leads, as Tim was just singing, we make a commitment to say, if I perish, I perish, but I've got to live what God's called me to live in big ways, in small ways. But how does that transformation happen? How do we become that kind of person? Well, we're going to learn from Esther in chapter 5 what that looked like as she began to live out her new identity. And so this chapter that we'll study this morning breaks down very cleanly into two sections. You've got one through eight that's all about Esther and her decision to go before the king and how she approaches that and what happens. And there's an application there from us, and I'll give you a teaser. The application, what we're going to learn from Esther, is all about what does it look like for us to work together with God? Like, how do we co-labor with God? What's our part? What's his part? 
And we're going to dig into that this morning. And then the second part of the chapter, you know, the story kind of takes this, this um, shadowy turn and it focuses on the enemy, Haman. And we're going to look from verses 9 through 14. We'll study what's going on in Haman's life and what's going on in Haman's heart. And unfortunately, there's something there for us to identify with as well. You know, we don't want to identify with Haman, but we must because there's something for us to learn through him. And the application we'll draw out of the second half of the chapter uh, is all around how do we deal with bitterness, disappointment, frustration, and anger that's in our own hearts. In other words, what do we do with an angry heart? And we'll learn from Haman uh, what not to do. And we'll talk about how we could respond differently. So let's jump into the chapter. That's a little bit of an overview of where we're going. I'm going to begin with chapter 1. And as we normally do, I'll read a verse and we'll just talk about it. And then we'll work our way through the chapter that way. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now... That doesn't read like a dramatic verse necessarily, but it's the dramatic moment in the story. So I've got to bring the the attention back into the story. Remember that if Esther interrupts the king uninvited, she's she's dead. She's a dead woman walking as soon as she goes into that place. We know the king is sitting on his royal throne. That means he's actually actively governing. He's in the process of doing what kings do, which is making laws and settling disputes and telling things what they want. He would have been surrounded by a big entourage. And in the middle of that, you know, picture almost like a courtroom where the judge is ruling. The doors burst open and there's Queen Esther. She's wearing the royal robes strategically chosen, I believe, to remind the king she's the queen. She has a relationship to him. And she interrupts him. And you probably could have just, you know, cut the tension with a knife. What is the king going to do? Because the law requires that he kill her. And remember what he did with his last wife when she did something he didn't like. Right? This is what's at stake. Let's see what happens. Verse 2. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, She obtained favor in his sight. This is the exhale moment in the story. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. A couple things about this verse that I want to drill in on. Number one, how interesting is it that this is the turning point in the whole story? Uh, Before chapter 5, verse 2, Everything has gone bad for the Jews. The whole story's downhill. It's like, this happens, then that happens, and it's just terrible. Bad things happen. From 5 verse 2 to the very end of the book of Esther, everything's up. Everything is good. This is literally the turning point of the story. I find it interesting that it takes a person being willing to sacrifice their own life for the story to turn. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of a, a, a story? I'd say it this way, when Esther decided to lay down her own life, when Esther decided to go to the very bottom, the rest of the story is up for her people. The rest of the story is good news, but it takes her being willing to risk it all. Secondly, let's talk about the golden scepter. It's certainly symbolic in a couple of ways. Number one, it's symbolic of the king's power, the king's authority. He wouldn't go anywhere on any official business without that scepter. It was a visual reminder to everyone else of who's in charge. There's only one man that makes the law, only one man that is above the law, no one else. And the only way that Esther was going to survive as a lawbreaker in that moment was for the one who made the law to extend her a pardon. And that's what he's doing with his scepter. He extends it out. 
Now notice what Esther has to do to receive the pardon. The text says she comes near and touches the scepter. So this is a symbolic action on her account. She's really saying two things. Number one, I submit myself, king, to your authority. Number two, I receive the pardon. I receive grace. Now, let's talk about this submission, because on the one hand, Esther's not submitting. In fact, she's going against her husband. I'd say it this way. She's standing up to her husband to do this whole, uh, th- this whole thing. You know, she interrupted him. But she still has to submit to him in order to receive the pardon, so then she can speak. Think of it this way. If Esther would have said, I don't need your scepter. I don't need your pardon. I haven't done anything wrong. That law you made is a dumb law. I should be able to interrupt you whenever you want. <laughs> Things would not have gone so well for her. Right? So she has to still submit herself to the law, if you want to th- think of it that way. But she not only submits herself, in other words, she only kneels down, she's also raised up. She receives the pardon. She receives the favor of the king. She receives grace. Now, does that remind you just a little bit of what you and I do with the gospel? At some point in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, you did both of those things that Esther did. You submit yourself to the authority of God over you. You admit, I am a lawbreaker. I I do need pardon. I do need grace. And yet at the same time, as you bend your knee figuratively, you are lifted up. You receive the pardon. You receive grace. You receive the favor of the king. You see, the golden scepter points us to that gospel. Let's continue in the story and find out what the king has to say to Esther in verse 3. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. So the king knows something's wrong. Isn't that interesting? He says, What is troubling you? Now why does he know something's wrong? He knows something's wrong because the only thing that would, that would uh, um, make or require Esther to risk her very life to talk to him must be something hard, something tragic, something difficult. What is troubling you? Esther. So he asks her that question, and then he gives her this little phrase, even the half the kingdom, you know, whatever it is you want. Now, that's not quite as good news as you think it is, because that's mostly a figure of speech at that time. But what he was saying is, I am predisposed to answering your request, so go ahead and tell me what it is. Now, the good news for Esther is, while this does not totally commit him, he's got one foot toward granting her request, whatever it is, because he's made this public statement. Even though it's a figure of speech, he's obligating himself just a wee little bit, and that's good news for Esther, but she's not out of the woods yet. I want to continue in verse 4, and I'm going to read 4 through 8, because Esther does something surprising. She doesn't directly answer the king's question. Let's hear what she says instead. Verse 4. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Verse 6. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, And if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. Interesting delay tactic, right? What's going on here? Why the banquets? 
You know, she's already been assured, you know, I'll give you what you want, just ask me. And instead she says, ah, come to the banquet. And then she's at the banquet, perfect opportunity. Ah, come to the banquet again tomorrow. What's really going on here? It's a little bit confusing until you start thinking about Esther's mindset. She has a masterful plan. There's a couple of clues in the text that maybe um, lead us to believe what was Esther's motivations. We don't know 100%, but we have a pretty good idea. Remember the king had banned sackcloth from the palace back in chapter 4, verse 2? No one could enter past the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Remember we talked about what would motivate a monarch to do that. Only if he's trying to insulate himself from talking about hard things and seeing hard things. He's saying, no one may grieve. No one may be outwardly sad in my presence because everything is awesome here, right? Esther knows that's her husband's mindset. She knows this man very well. And she says, I'm not going to blurt it out in front of all the other people in this big contingent in the middle of it while he's sitting on his throne. I'm going to put him in a different environment. I'm going to make sure he's ready to hear this because it's hard. It's not a joyful thing I need to talk to him about. This is a hard, sad thing about me and my people. So she invites him to a banquet. If there's one thing Ahasuerus loves more than anything else, it's a good banquet, right? Remember back in chapter one? This is the same man that had a six-month banquet, followed by a one-week banquet. Then in chapter two, he has another banquet when Esther becomes queen. Then in chapter three, we see him and Haman banqueting together while the rest of the city is in confusion about the law that was just passed. You see, this is now going to be the fourth and fifth banquet that this king has had. Esther knows her husband. Here's a man that loves a good party. She's being strategic. I would phrase it this way. She is working within the king's limitations to make sure he can truly hear what she needs to say. I believe that's what's going on here. Now, one other subtle nuance. Every time this king says, up to half my kingdom, it will be given to you. He is publicly obligating himself. He's getting in a little bit deeper and deeper. By the time she actually makes the formal request, she will have heard that phrase, not once, not twice, but three times. So for him to then go back on what he's already said would have been more and increasingly difficult for him to do. You see, Esther is a smart woman. She's playing her cards very well. And that's where I want to get into this application of when we are co-laboring with God, when we're working with God together on something, whatever it is, what is our part? What is God's part? How do, we, how do we work together with God? And I think this application applies to us as parents as we co-labor with God in the raising of our children. I believe it applies in your job and your career. You have hopes, you have aspirations, but there's only so much you can do. You've got to essentially co-labor with God in every endeavor of life. So let's... Learn from Esther how she did it. I'll break it down this way. Let's talk about what Esther did, and we'll talk about what God did and how they worked together. Esther did a lot, if you think about it. Uh, the end of chapter 4, she organized a fast for the whole community of faith. Uh, she created a plan. This whole idea about the banquets, right? That was her idea, probably led by God. But she executed the plan. She prepared the banquet ahead of time, even before she asked the king. Esther wore the right clothes, the royal robe. She was smart about that. She chose her time wisely. She knew her audience. She put all these things into place. I'd say it this way. Esther did all she could, but in the end, she could not change the king's heart on her own. She was out of favor with the king. We know this from chapter 4. She said, the king has not called for me in 30 days. Now, the king doesn't sleep alone. 
So what that means is the king had found another toy. What that means is Esther was old hat. He didn't want to see her. He wasn't interested in her. How in the world is the king's heart going to be changed from callousness or maybe even anger or disappointment in his wife? How is that heart going to be changed to someone that would show her favor? Esther can't do that. She can put on the clothes. She can make her makeup look good. She can do all these things. But at the end of the day, she cannot change the king's heart toward her. Who can? I wonder if Esther was ever taught by Mordecai, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Esther did a lot, but only God could turn the king's heart. And so we read in verse 2, she obtained favor in his sight. How do you think she did that? God is working behind the scenes to navigate the king's heart to a posture of acceptance of this woman that comes before him. Here's the way I would summarize it. Esther did all the work that she could do. God did the work that only he could do. And I think this is the principle for us as we co-labor with God in our parenting, in our grandparenting, in our careers, in our jobs, in anything that you do. Do all that you can do and then trust God to do the things that only God can do. This is how we co-labor. Esther's a great example. She didn't just sit back on her couch and say, all right, God, zap him with lightning. She did some things. But on the other hand, at the end of the day, she knew she couldn't do it. Not all of it. God had to turn the king's heart. So she counted on him. She trusted him to do it as she boldly burst through the doors. You see. Now, the best analogy that I could think of for what it means to, to live this out and co-labor with God and all the endeavors that we have is the analogy of gardening. Now, I'm not a good gardener. I'm, I, you know, I, I've, I've joked around that I have a black thumb instead of a green thumb. All right? I'm not a good gardener. But I appreciate good gardening. And the kind of gardening that I most appreciate is not so much the vegetables and all those things, although, you know, that's great to eat. I enjoy beauty of a good garden. I enjoy walking into, say, a, a grand botanical gardens where there have been some thought put into what kind of flowers here, what kind of trees here, and the little brook that runs through and the stone bridge across, and it creates this paradise. My heart just sort of relaxes in those kinds of environments. They're some of my favorite places to be on earth. I think the reason I love them so much is because I have this sort of background understanding that this is God's creativity and man's creativity coming together, you see. Think about it this way. In gardening, you can plant the seed, you can till the soil, you can fertilize it, you can water it, you can set up the irrigation system, but you can't provide the sun. You can't do whatever is necessary in the genetic makeup of that seed to make it an apple tree or a tulip or a squash. You can't do that, you see. You're doing all that you can do and trusting God to do the things that only he can do. This is gardening. Now, the more I thought about gardening, the more I thought about this applies to all areas of our lives. Isn't it interesting that man's original primary vocation was gardening, God put Adam in the garden and he essentially says this, I want you to use the natural resources that I've created and I want you to work with them and I want you to make them beautiful and I want you to make them good to eat and I want you to do your part, Adam, so for the flourishing of mankind to my glory. And I've thought ever since, all of our work 
in some respect is gardening. Raising your kids, that's gardening. You do all that you can do and trust God to do the rest. You can share the gospel with that kid. You can make sure you're exposing them to Bible study. You can put them in programs. You can do all these things, right? You cannot save your child. You cannot keep your child from walking away from God. In your career, you can have big dreams, high hopes. You can have a wonderful product to market to the world. You can do all that you can that you've done, and you're going to put it out there. But honestly, isn't it up to God and his providence of where that actually goes? In your relationships, your marriages, your friendships, your relationships with neighbors, especially if they're difficult, don't you know you can only do so much? God's got to intervene. God's got to knit things back together. God's got to make things right because those are things that only God can do. Do all that you can. can. Trust God to do what only he can do. I made a list of some things that only God can do just to remind us. Only God can soften a heart. Only God can open someone's eyes. Only God can create life. Only God can heal brokenness. Only God can make your labor bear fruit. Only God can bring good out of tragedy. Only God can transform lives. Only God can bring someone back to him. Only God can answer prayer. You can't do any of those things. The really great news is those are God's specialties. Last week, I taught this message at Brentwood, and I had a lady come up to me after the service, and she said, I've got one more thing to add to that list. I said, what is that? And I noticed she had tears in her eyes. And she said, only God can write my story. And she started to share with me, and she said, I've been trying to write my story. And I think I'm learning that only God can ultimately write my story. Add that to the list. I thought about another proverb that I love, Proverbs 16, 9. In his heart a man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Isn't that true? Do all the work that you can do, but trust God to do the work that only he can do. Let's read verses 9 through 14 together. The story is going to take an interesting turn as we zoom out from Esther and we zoom in on Haman. If you're a fan of movie soundtracks like I am, this is the point when the music turns a little sinister, right? Pick it up in verse 9. Then Haman went out that day. This is after the first banquet. He was glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Verse 12 Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. A lot of irony there, by the way. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet, all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows, 50 cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. 
and the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. A couple of exegetical notes before we talk about Haman and, and why I think he's such an interesting character. Uh, number one, when you hear the English word gallows, what comes to your mind? It's this wooden structure with this hangman's noose at the top. That hadn't been invented yet. They weren't hanging people by their necks, as best as we can tell, in ancient Persia. What we do know they were doing from a lot of carvings and drawings and, and, and historical uh, accounts of this, they were impaling people. Now, the word gallows in Hebrew, it's translated gallows, is simply the Hebrew word for tree. So what this woman is saying is, build a tree and have Mordecai hanged on it. Now, how do you hang someone on a tree and how do you even build a tree? Well, it simply means build a wooden structure. So anything that was wooden, they would kind of just refer to it as a tree. Build a tree, build a wooden structure and have him hanged on it. This is a picture of impaling. So this would have been a pole. It would have had a sharp edge and they would have taken Mordecai, and this is the intention anyway, and they would have hung him on the pole. See, they would have jammed him down on there. The second thing you need to know, which is sort of terrifying, is that this pole was 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet. Now, I had to do a little research to picture this. So our ceiling here is about 35, 40 feet high. That's half of what this pole would have been. Can you imagine seeing a, seeing a guy impaled 75 feet in the air? Why would he do it that high? Only so that the whole city could see. And the whole city would know, look what happens when you cross Haman. Look what happens when you make Haman mad. Look what happens when you don't give Haman what he wants, you see. He's pouring out his wrath, Haman is, on this man Mordecai, and he's going to show everybody. He's going to make an example of him way up in the sky. Now, he is a fascinating case study, and here's where I think we can identify with him as much as we don't want to. Haman has a problem, all right, but it's not Mordecai. Haman has a problem, but the problem is not what he thinks it is. Listen to his frame of mind, verses 11 and 12. He's basically saying, I've got all these things going right, but there's this one thing, and I can't rest. I've got all these blessings. I've got wealth. I've got power, but I can't sleep at night. I can't relax. I can't have joy. I can't rest because of Mordecai, because of this one man, you see. You ever done this? I've got all these blessings in my life. I've got kids. I've got a house. I've got a job. I've got my health, whatever it is. But there's this one person. There's this one thing. I'm not getting what I want in this area of my life. There's this one denial that I can't have that, whatever that is, you see. And it steals your joy. Here's how we can relate to Haman. He's essentially saying, someone else, something else external to me is stealing my joy joy and I can't have peace I can't rest because that thing is out there that man is out there here's what Haman is essentially doing he's saying the problem the reason that I can't have joy the reason that I can't rest and have contentment and enjoy the things that I have is because of this problem out there he's not seeing the bigger problem right here in his heart it's not Mordecai Mordecai is not the problem it's his pride it's his vanity it's his insatiable quest for power that he can never rest, you see. Haman refuses to look inward. He can only see the problem out there. And this is familiar to us. How many times have you said or thought, I could be joyful. I could have peace. I could be content if, if I had that one thing. 
if that one person gave me what I wanted, if I hadn't been wounded back in the day, if something would have gone differently, if I could just break through, if I could just have that thing, then I could be joyful, then I could be content. The problem is that one thing's always going to be there. If it's not the one thing, it'll be another thing. It's kind of like playing that game whack-a-mole. Remember that? It's just like, oh, you know, my, my, my kid's out of line. Whack! You know, now everything's good. Uh-oh, now my health is an issue. Whack! No, now we got financial problems. Whack! Now my parents are sick. It goes, and it goes, and it goes. You never have peace if that's your mindset. You never have peace if you think the answer to your joy and your peace and contentment is the problems out there. You won't do it because on this broken creation, there's always going to be problems out there. Now, some of you are thinking, because I was when I first started going down this path, I see that anger. I see that bitterness in other people. I see that disappointment and frustration. I see Haman in my spouse or my dad or my mom or my friend or my neighbor, or my coworker, or my boss. I see them doing that, but I don't see it here. I had an experience that, that really humbled me as I was preparing this message. I was taking my kids to the pool. Uh, you know, the pools are open now, and you go to the pool like eight times the first week, you know, because the pool is open. And we've got three young daughters, and I got home from work one day. This was about a week and a half ago, and the pool had just opened a few days before. And I got home. I was tired. I just going to have some me time. You know, the last thing I really wanted to do was exert any kind of energy and engage with them, if I'm honest. And they said, we really want to go to the pool. Daddy, take us to the pool. And you know, I looked at Jody, and I could tell she'd had a hard day. You know? And I thought, okay, I'm going to take my kids to the pool. I said, okay, let's go to the pool. And so the kids said, yay. And the wife said, yay. You, know, you take them to the pool. <laughs> and I thought to myself, win, win. All right, kids win, wife win. But then I thought, what about me? I want to go for a win, win, win. So we got to the pool, and I thought, you know, there's that shady little cabana over there. I don't really need to swim. And we finally got our youngest to the place where she can kind of be on her own as long as I'm sort of watching. And I had some articles I wanted to read, some things that interested me on, on, online that I wanted to check out. And I sat under that cabana with my phone, you know. The problem is the girls didn't want to give me what I wanted. They wanted me. So they kept coming up to me. Daddy, watch me jump in. Daddy, why, why won't you get in the water with us? And so what I would do is I would do the polite dad thing. I would get up, I'd come, you know, I'd cheer and clap for the jump in, and then I'd go back to my nice little comfortable shady spot and read my phone. And every time they asked me, I got a little bit more frustrated. I got a little bit more angry because they weren't giving me what I wanted. And finally, it all culminated with they had a big argument over one of the, um, the noodles, the pool noodles. And Karis, our five-year-old, was just in tears because someone took the noodle from her. And I was so hot, y'all. I was so mad. I walked over to that little girl, and she was crying, and I just wanted to just... I, I, I picked her up out of the water, and I had her about halfway up, and I noticed, you're not picking her up with the same gentleness that you normally would pick her up with. And then these words came out of my mouth. What is wrong with you girls? This is the last time I'm going to take you to the pool. Why can't we have five minutes of peace? I stayed mad for about 15, 20 minutes. It was only later that I thought back on it and I said, Haman, I've got three beautiful daughters. I've got all these things going well in my life, but they weren't giving me what I wanted and I was angry. I took it out on them. 
What's wrong with you? Why won't you give me what I want? What do we do with this? What do we do with the hardness of our own hearts? What do we do with bitterness and anger? That's in every single one of us. I don't know if you consider yourself an angry person or not, but you know what causes anger? When you don't get your way. And all of us have anger. And for some of us, we wear it better than others, but it it comes. It's there. I want to read to you what James says about anger because this just like pierced me to my core when I thought about this passage. You don't need to turn there. James chapter 4, 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Now, Haman was willing to literally kill. I wasn't going to literally kill at that pool, but it was in my heart. (laughs) You desire what you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Here's what James is saying about anger and frustration and disappointment when things don't go the way we want. That underneath all those emotions are selfish desires, unmet expectations, and impure motives. In other words, you're looking in the wrong place for the root of the problem. It's not out there. It's in here. Now, some of you might be thinking, but I really was wronged. It's not just in here, Rob. It's also out there. I'd say, yeah, yeah. We are all victims of sin and perpetrators of sin. But the only way to heal, the only way to be transformed is to look inward. James is saying you've got to look in. You've got to see what's wrong right in here before you go casting blame everywhere else and fighting and quarreling and coveting and killing. James says something else. He says not only do you look inward, but you look up. Did you catch that? He says you do not have because you do not ask God. What James is essentially saying is talk to God about it. So this goes back to our list earlier. Transforming your angry heart is something that only God can do. Put it on the list. You can't transform your heart. So talk to God about it. Ask for it. And to make sure you're not asking with impure motives, you look inward first. You confess your sin, the own anger, the bitterness, the disappointment that you have. You desire to take it out on others and hold others accountable and hold others responsible for what's not right in your life. The lack of joy, the lack of contentment that you've been blaming others for, you start with confessing. You look inward first and then you look up. Say, God, would you help me? I'm asking. Haman didn't understand this. Haman couldn't look in and then look up. All Haman could see was out. All he could see was Mordecai. 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 That man Mordecai. So he hears the worst possible advice. And the scripture says, It pleased him. His wife and his friends tell him to build a gallows. Now what is Haman doing with the gallows? He's projecting his own sin, his pride, his hubris, his vanity. He's projecting that on someone else. He's choosing a victim. He's blaming. He's refusing to acknowledge his own heart problem. And he's punishing someone else for not giving him what he wants. He's picking up that little girl and saying, what is wrong with you? Here's the problem with building a gallows. 
Whose gallows is he actually building? It's his own gallows. He just doesn't know it. When you deal, when I deal with my disappointment and frustration in life, with anger and frustration and blaming and focusing out there rather than focusing in here, I'm impaling myself on my own bitterness. Some of you have a 75-foot gallows in your own soul. Something happened to you that you can't get over. You're being denied of something that you legitimately need and it's not being given. There's a longing in your heart of something that you don't have, something you wish you had, something that's wrong with your life. And you have unintentionally, accidentally even, built a gallows and you're hollowing out your soul on the point of that pole. And the shadow of this enormous place of death is dominating your life if you have eyes to see it. What's your answer? What's our answer to the normal frustration we have because things don't always go the way we want them to go? We don't always get our way. What's the answer? Not to build a gallows, but to say, I have a heart problem and I need God's help. To look inward and then look up. When you really start to see your sin and you have eyes to see what's wrong in here before you have eyes to see what's wrong out there and then you think about what Jesus did, you look up. You think about what Jesus did in spite of your wickedness, in spite of your brokenness. You start to see that you don't need to build a gallows because someone has already been hung on a tree for you. Someone bore the wrath of God, all the injustice on the earth, and he bore it. He was hung on the tree. He died. So you don't have to put yourself or anyone else up on the tree. You don't have to punish. You don't have to take it out. You don't have to blame. You can simply look in and say, I'm in need of grace, and look up and say, their grace is. Here's the paradox of the gospel. The more you look in, the more you see the darkness of your own heart, the more you see your own depravity and your own selfishness and how everything deep down ultimately really is about you, whether you really think it is or not, the more you see that, the more appreciative you are of grace. The less self-righteous you get and the more humble you get, the more like Jesus Christ you get as you look in and then you look up. Now, because this kind of transformation is on the list of something that only God can do, we need to ask him for it. So that's how I want to close our service. I want to pray. I want to ask God for that kind of transformation in me and for you, like literally you. And I won't be able to say all of your names, but I'm going to pray for you as a body, as a congregation. Would you join with me as I do that? Our Father, if we confess what is really true, we all have bitterness and anger that there are things in our life that are not right, that are stealing our joy, And we want those things to go away. 
And we want those things to be removed so that we can, as, as Haman tried to do, so we can go to the banquet with joy once the problem is done, once the problem is fixed. The reality, Father, as we confess to you right now, joy is not found in that elimination of the enemy or the problem or the gap. Joy is found as we look to you. And that's not an easy thing to do because it doesn't feel like joy is in you, Father. It feels like we should be seeking all these other areas. So I pray for something that only you can do for the, on behalf of this congregation, the men and women that are sitting right now in this room. I pray that you would transform their hearts. I pray that they would begin to see areas of their lives and their hearts that are gaps, where they are selfish, where they have, even if, if they haven't seen it before, would you give them eyes to see? Would you burn away self-righteousness? Would you burn away the, the tendency to say, man, my husband's like that, my wife is like that, my kids are like that. Would you help us to see right here in our own hearts? And as we see our utter depravity, would we quickly look up? And when we see Jesus hanging on that cross for us, and when we know that in the midst of our sin, he died for us. And I pray, Father, that we would then be able to enter into true joy as we reflect on that and as we're transformed by the gospel, that we would live lives of joy amidst hurt, amidst pain, amidst disappointment, that you would transform our hearts, which is something that only you can do. And so I'm asking, I'm pleading with you on behalf of this congregation, would you do this in us? Thank you for your love, your grace. It's in the great name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.